Today's episode is brought to you by Coverage.Script. Are you working on a dead-end creative project that no one seems to care about? Are you blind to the inherent problems that prevent you from achieving success? Are you too dry-witted and insular to make a work of art with any mainstream appeal? Or do you simply need an outside observer to tell you that it's time to quit? Then check out Coverage.Script to kickstart your pointless endeavor today. Welcome back to Classic Coverage, the podcast that looks at classic movies back when they were just screenplays. My name is Max Davis and I'm your host, and normally I'd give you some kind of preamble with all of my titles and accomplishments, and you know what? Let's screw that this week because I'm too damn excited. Uh, we got a sponsor. Yes, that's right. Uh, in the immortal words of Janine from Ghostbusters, uh, and I'm not quoting the recent reboot. I'm quoting the, uh, let's say, uh, the good one. Uh, we got one. Yes, uh, that's right. Uh, this show officially has a sponsor now. The good people at Coverage.Script uh, are taking care of us. Uh, they are fantastic. Uh, actually, I haven't even checked out their website so much, but I can just assume that they offer some great script advice. Uh, they sent me 25 bucks to my Venmo account, and they are now my favorite website and my favorite sponsor in the world. Uh, so this pointless podcast with no mass appeal is finally going somewhere. Yes! Uh, for first-time listeners of the show, I am... Is that presumptuous of me, assuming that there are new listeners? I don't want to be presumptuous. That's, that's sort of a Caleb thing to do. But either way, I am an unpaid script reader at a major Hollywood studio. And when I'm not in the intern room, sandwiched between the copier and the Keurig machine, I will take the golf cart and over, take it over to the vault. And the vault holds all of the coverage ever written on any script ever submitted to the studio. But when I'm not doing that and having fun, I have to read scripts at my desk. And uh, as you might recall from last week, we ended the episode where I accidentally broke a coffee mug from the Brentwood Children's School and spilled coffee all over a script. Now, typically when you read a script, you know by page 16 whether or not it's any good, and you can just put it down before even reaching 17. But with this one, I actually wanted to keep reading. I, I don't want to jinx anything, but it's good. Words that, once more, I never thought would come out of my mouth. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to finish up Act 2 later on this afternoon. But this very w may well be the third time that I've ever given the grade of a consider to a spec script. Uh, the first two were the scripts for Passengers and Dirty Grandpa. And an update on the Brentwood Children's School mug is that I called up said school and I figured maybe I can get uh, a replacement. Maybe I can buy one from them. Maybe they have a school store and I can swap them out and my boss will be none the wiser. So I called up the Brentwood Children's School and I explained my situation and they were pissed. Uh, for people who deal with small children, I guess they have a lot of pent-up rage and aggression because they started screaming at me and they demanded to know who I was because that mug came from a very specific fundraiser in 2013 and they only made, only made 20 of them and they needed to know who I was so that they would know who stole that mug. Uh, I, so naturally I did what I normally would. I said that my name was Marcus Halberstram and I hung up. Although they might have seen that I was calling from the office phone and the caller ID would probably say which studio I work at and then they would double check which one of their parents actually happens to work at the studio. Huh. So it looks as though I'm going to have to stay one step ahead of an overpriced Los Angeles private school that had a fundraiser for concussion-proof helmets for their flag football team. Story of my life, people. 
I suppose I could keep blaming everything on my intern, Caleb, but I don't know. I've been going into that well a lot as of late. And oh my God, he has been obnoxious as of late. Just when do I get paid? When do I get paid? I mean, buddy, you've been here for three weeks. Okay. Some of us have been here for years. All right. Like point blank asking for what you want for your bosses. Like that's never going to work. Okay. Just, just, just wait, bide your time. Trust the process. The strange thing about him is like, I keep talking about Caleb to other people at the office and nobody seems to know what I'm talking about. Is it like he's a figment of my imagination or something? Well, boy, wouldn't that be a crazy plot twist where it turns out that he's my Tyler Durden and just I've been talking to myself this entire time. Huh. Yeah, that would that would come out of the blue. Haven't really laid a lot of pipe for that. Yeah, hopefully that's not the case. So this week I was tasked with reading and writing up a romantic comedy script called AI Heart You. It's the story of two artificial intelligences who gain sentience and fall in love. They're actually two, uh, two Tinder bots. But the question is, what they call love, is that actually an emotion or is it just part of the algorithm? This script, it's an example of a writer trying to inject what is hot or hip, or as the kids are calling it, in the zeitgeist uh, into, your, into your work. And right now, artificial intelligence is the new hot thing. A lot of AI scripts bouncing around. And I'm sure that after Ready Player One comes out, we're going to see the virtual reality attempted a romantic comedy. But this one, it doesn't succeed. And part of it is because it was already done better in, what was the name of that movie? It was the one where, the one where Scarlett Johansson only does the voice acting, so you can't tell that she can't act in real life. It was called uh, The Jungle Book? No, 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 sorry, sorry. Her. So Her already did it a lot better. And this one, it's, it's flat, it's uninspired. Well, you see, the rom-com, it's a strange animal. See, some say that it's a cyclical genre, that it will die and then come back later on. Same thing happened to the Western or the musical. But right now, you know, I feel about the romantic comedy like Ryan Gosling did about jazz and La La Land. You know, it is dying out there. It is rotting on the vine and no one cares about it. So when you take a dying genre with uh, overused technology like AI, that script, it's going to get a pass. I mean, I'm only at page 25, but I can already tell it's, it's going to be a pass. But this got me thinking about romantic comedies, and so today I decided I was going to use my classic coverage to go out to the vault and read a great romantic comedy that sort of inspired the 1990s boom of the genre. And so this week, we're going to look at a story about when Harry met Sally. Script title, When Harry Met Sally. Screenwriter, Nora Ephron. Genre, Romantic comedy. Page count, 101. Draft date, February 14th, 1988. Log line. Over the course of 20 years, a man and a woman struggle to keep romance out of their platonic friendship. Comments. Can a man and a woman be just friends? Or will the sex part get in the way? This is the central question that when Harry Met Sally asks us, asking us point blank at times, and while not a bad conversation starter, is this really enough to drive an entire feature film? There's not a lot of conflict to the script, as the central dilemma feels like the B story for another larger movie. It's the sort of problem that supporting characters struggle with while the leads are concerned with something much more pressing. If this were set against, say, World War II, or if Harry and Sally ran rival businesses, or if there was a life-threatening illness involved, perhaps the concept would be heightened, and therefore it could find its voice. But to simply follow around two people as they reach the inevitable conclusion of romance? Not a great cinematic journey. Where's the ticking clock? Is there a meteor approaching the Earth and Harry and Sally have to declare their love in time? 
The core concept is about these two trying to avoid a relationship. And what are the forces keeping Harry and Sally apart? There aren't many. They're just waiting for the right timing. Waiting to both be single, waiting to recognize that the other is their soulmate, and waiting to be at a point in their lives when they are ready to date each other. These aren't Herculean tasks. At the midpoint, there's a New Year's Eve party where they consider kissing. They come close, but ultimately hug. It's a rare instance of where the conflict actually intercedes and interferes with their daily life. Occasionally, there's a hint of jealousy, such as when she is dating a perfect guy and he's involved with a successful yet younger baker, but these are easily overcome. Harry and Sally finally sleep together on page 87, giving us our first real moment of the script realizing the premise's core concept. Let me repeat that. It takes until page 87 for the conflict to finally enter the equation. We need more of these moments, and much sooner than the second act break, for this to be an actual movie. In a fairly inactive script, the question is whether or not these characters' charm is enough to overcome the lack of stakes. Our leads are Sally Albright and Harry Burns. Albright and Burns. A bit on the nose with the fiery and brightness last names. She's sunny and bright. He's a cynic who burns. We get it. The script does, however, do a good job of encapsulating who these people are very early on. We learn that Sally is an optimist, traveling to New York so that her life can start, so that things can happen to her. Harry is a realist who reads the last page of a book first, just in case he dies before he finishes it. Both are very likable from the get-go. There's a fun early dialogue about Days of the Week underwear, and a running gag about what they would have done at the end of Casablanca, which lays pipe for slash telegraphs the inevitable third-act climax. And then there's the conversation about whether or not men and women can be friends, or if the sex part gets in the way. A conversation that they have many, many times. We want the leads to get together, which is always a difficult task when writing a romantic comedy. But it almost feels as though they already are. Harry and Sally's relationship and rapport is strong. Would being boyfriend and girlfriend really be any different than the status quo that we already have? While the stakes do not change, the characters do progress over time. The time jumps help, as Harry moves from cynic to romantic and back to cynic, and Sally's youthful optimism is followed by a period of depression and then back to a hopeful outlook. The supporting players, Jess and Marie, are seemingly there purely to nod their heads while the friends monologue. Later on in Act 2, however, they become active foils for Harry and Sally, getting engaged and married as their friends remain stagnant. As stated before, this is a very talky script, but the dialogue is often sharp and snappy. There's a good cadence to the back and forth, as seen in the exchange about whether or not women fake their orgasms, or Harry's rant about splitting up your book collection in preparation for a divorce. Quote, Six years later, you find yourself singing Surrey with a Fringe on Top in front of Ira, page to 87. While occasionally observational, there is a lot of monologuing that doesn't necessarily drive the plot forward. Trim back these conversations, and you're left with maybe 50 pages or so of actual plot. And on the subject of the fake orgasm scene in the deli, it feels totally inconsistent with the rest of the grounded, droll, introspective script. The third act is only 10 pages long. Normally, the denouement should take place over about 25. But here, Harry realizes that he loves Sally, runs down the street, finds her at another New Year's party, and offers yet another monologue. Quote, when you realize that you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. Page 99. 
The story takes the easy way out, opting for the path of least resistance. There isn't enough time really suffering or struggling for this climax to really pay off. We need a few more beats and maybe a set piece before this final conversation. When Harry Met Sally features an interesting device, interstitial scenes of other older couples offering their respective love stories. But what is the purpose of these? Do their love stories resonate with Harry or Sally or mirror their journey? Do we ever see any of these couples again? No. It just eats up pages with some diverting, armchair philosophizing, and a few anecdotes. When Harry Met Sally features a small, if interesting, concept that ultimately can't drive or fuel a feature script. As a writing sample, Miss Ephron should be considered for future projects, particularly for dialogue passes. But this script simply is not a film. It is an assortment of observations leading to an inevitable love story. It's an inactive script. Men and women can be friends, oh yes they can, just so long as conflict doesn't get in the way of that. Recommendation. Pass. So there you have it, When Harry Met Sally is an inactive rom-com. And to be honest, most of Nora Ephron's movies are like this. Sleepless in Seattle keeps the two leads apart for literally the entire movie until the final scene, and You've Got Mail is essentially Tom Hanks catfishing Meg Ryan. So maybe the romantic comedy genre has been dead for a lot longer than we thought. Uh, now if you'll excuse me, I have to go finish up AI Heart You before I can move on to this good mystery script. Uh, thank you as always to Noah Goldberg for providing the theme music, and more importantly than that, thank you to Coverage.Script for being the greatest website on the internet. Go visit their site, I cannot emphasize that enough. My name is Max Davison, reminding you as always that even the classics could use another passive notes. <laughs> <laughs>